Okay. This week's parsha, the parsha begins with a double lashon of Emor v'Amarta. Rashi explains that Emor v'Amarta. Why is there a double lashon? Lahazir gedoyle malakatan to instruct the Kohanim that they have to educate their children. Three things Kohanim need to specifically exhort their children in. One, don't eat bugs. Torah prohibits the eating of bugs. Don't eat bugs. Number two, don't drink blood, or don't ingest blood. And number three, to maintain the tahara, the state of ritual purity of their children. These are the three things that they have to educate their children in. The obvious question is, why these three things? Sometimes, sometimes I feel like I'm, I'm speaking to you before your time. It's, it's an interesting challenge as an educator because I want to say things to you now that I know are not relevant but that might one day be relevant. And so there's an interesting challenge that the Rebbeim and the teachers who stand in front of the room have because we want to share with you things that we hope you'll remember in 10, 15 years from now, but we know that you won't because I don't remember the shirim that I heard and I can't imagine that you'll remember the shirim that you heard. But what we can do is plant seeds. We can record it. (laughs) And uh, indeed we do. But it's still valuable because even if we don't remember, the words, they come into us and then we take them with us. The Lubavitcher Rebbe explains that these three injunctions are all relevant to the children that we raise, perhaps even to the Talmidim and Talmidot that we teach. The first is don't eat bugs. The Gemara in Hario says that a person does not naturally have a taiva to eat bugs. Like when you look on the when you look on the floor, you don't think to yourself, delicious. Yeah. Slimy, yet satisfying, correct. Nobody in their right mind thinks that. In fact, there's a dinner here in Eretz Yisrael where there are certain, there are certain creatures like grasshoppers that if you would have a misora, and there is a misora for some of these bugs, that they're actually permitted to eat. 
And so there's a dinner where they eat all of these creatures that are permitted to eat, and they have like chocolate-covered grasshoppers at this dinner. And it's a guy in my parents' neighborhood who who runs this dinner, and my parents are like, "Do you want to like Do you want to come?" And I, I said no because I have no particular taiva to eat. Like I have a taiva to eat. <laughs> Careful. <laughs> but I, I have no taiva. Like, I have a taiva for a hamburger. I have no taiva. A natural taiva I don't have for grasshoppers. Yeah. And, that, and that's a good thing, right? So the Gemara in Hario says, so why would a person, like, specifically go out of their way to eat bugs? So the Gemara says, because they don't have a taiva for the bugs. They have a taiva for doing the wrong thing. And when we think about our children, you ever have a scenario where you wanted to do something, not because you wanted to do it, but because your parents told you not to? Yeah. So it's not really so different, right? But think to yourself for a moment what it's like to educate that child. You see, if you're standing up in front of a classroom and you have some students that are smarter and some students that are less smart, so any decent teacher will say, well, okay, it's, it's my obligation to teach that student that's not necessarily as intelligent and to find the path for them to learn. And so the teacher might employ a number of strategies to grab that child in, right? The teacher will say things like, we're going to learn privately on the side. Or put away your phone in the middle of uh, class, this way you can better pay attention. And there's different things that the teacher might do to grab the child's attention to keep them engaged. Maybe they have a different style of learning. Right? Maybe, they're, maybe they have auditory processing issues. We kind of intuitively understand that when it comes to teaching... We intuitively understand that when it comes to teaching, we have an obligation to grab every student in the class. And we know that just because you're sitting in the back of the class and talking or because you're sitting in the front of the class and taking notes, we know as teachers that it's our obligation to grab every one of those children. But sometimes, sometimes you'll hear parents and educators say something to the effect of, look, I can teach anyone who wants to learn, but if you don't want to learn, what am I supposed to do as the teacher? Right? And you have kids that by their very nature are oppositional. And that's a tough thing as a parent to look at a child who's specifically being oppositional. It's not so difficult for a parent to throw up their hands and go, look, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with this one. And sometimes you'll have a family where you have four or five, six kids, and maybe five or six of them kind of go with the flow, right? They're just kind of like, they're that kid, you know, they're like, they're, they're the easy ones, right? But then you have that one, the one that ultimately will, will be the best one, but right now, right, is, is going against, against the stream just because it's against the stream. You know, like, 
You have that student in class sometimes that like the teacher gives this amazing sheer and like everybody is like like going nuts. I was like an amazing sheer and you have the one kid the one kid goes like I, like this ridiculous, right? And they're like you know that the, you know that they heard the point, but they're just their natural gisha is to say I'm not interested. So we have the propensity, unfortunately, to say that kid. I don't know what you want me to do about that kid. The first lesson of education in the Torah is our obligation is even to those kids who want to eat insects for no other reason than it's usser to eat insects. And this by itself is a revolution. It means that when you show up to parent, and that's why I said we're a little early here, right? Because you may not remember, and I doubt you will, remember this year when you are 35, 40 years old and you have a teenage daughter or a teenage son and you know that teenager is just being obnoxious for the sake of being obnoxious. You know this because... Right. <laughs> because it's called payback, right? You know this. So, our attitude in the Jewish world is that kid too. Leave no man behind. And don't give up on a kid simply because they're doing the wrong thing for the sake of doing the wrong thing. And just like you have an obligation to figure out a way to teach that kid who maybe has special needs, you have an obligation to teach the kid who has this attitude of, I'm not part of this. And that's a very, very difficult thing to do. But that's how we start off. The first thing. All of them. Every single one of them. And those that don't want to be there, them too. Rav Freifeld Zechet Tzadik Levracha, who was the founding Rashiva of Shayashov, used to keep on his wall a key, a giant key that was on his wall. And people would ask him, what's the key to? And he would say, the key is there to remind me that every single Talmud that walks in this door, there's a key, a unique key to opening up that kid. But you have to find that key, and not all locks are the same. And so maybe you look at a lock and you go, okay, like, all locks kind of look like this, so all keys more or less are going to be in this mold, and some kids have a totally different type of lock, and you need to reinvent the key to get to those kids. So what's our attitude when we see those kids? Is our attitude like, okay, like, you know, we're doing our best. No, we have to reinvent the wheel for those kids. That's why it goes viral when Rabbi Kalish from Waterbury is posted on Meaningful Minute and he tells a story that his son was in an elevator and he got stuck and the elevator got stuck and he's like pressing, he's pressing the alarm button over and over again and the guy's like, stop pressing the buttons. And he's like, I'm not pressing the buttons, I'm pressing the alarm button. And Rabbi Kalish is like, don't you see that these kids, you looking at them and going like, stop pressing the buttons, they're pressing the alarm button. It's a cry for help. And that video went crazy viral and people were sending it to me left and right and they're like, did you see Rabbi Kalish's video? Did you see Rabbi Kalish's video? And yeah, I saw it because the first 30 people that sent it to me, I saw it. <laughs> and I, and I keep sending it, I appreciate it. You know, but it's like, why, like, why does that touch us so deeply? 
Because, and this is a good thing, because today we understand that the kid, the kid who's pressing the button, who's, you look at him and you go, he's just being obnoxious, he's not being obnoxious. He's not just doing it for the sake of saying, I want to do the opposite thing. They don't know how to connect. It's your responsibility to figure out how to connect those kids. And it wasn't always like that. There was a time, and Baruch Hashem, today we don't have that as much. But there was a time, and unfortunately, I, should, I shouldn't say that, and unfortunately today too many people still experience this. But there was a time where it was so prevalent that if you were like, if you didn't fit the mold, if you weren't part of it, so it's like Tazovitz said, just go, like, go do your thing, we're here. We lock arms. I remember an article. It's a very, very sad article. That this person was saying that they likened the Jewish world to dancing at a wedding. In the middle, you have the kala, or the chasen. And the kala is dancing with her best friend. Who's that circle right around the kala? The best, no, the mom's already <laughs> off in her own circle with her own friends. That's already like, and by the way, I'm in that circle now. I'm in the dad circle. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's like a movement in your life. When you're in the dad circle, like I'm looking over at all these kids and they're going crazy and I'm like, you guys are being very loud. <laughs> and, you're, and you're bumping into me as I'm trying to like dance with my friend over here. Could you guys calm down? You know, like. And I'm like, I'm like, I don't understand. We're hurting kids hearing. I'm like, really, I've become, I'm embracing it, but I've become an old man. I'm so old. You're like that already now? Oh, you're going to be a disaster. If you're like that at 18, you're in trouble. <laughs> I'm not Makapal. I'm sure you're going to Meron. The, uh, I'm not Mac- I don't believe Lashon Hara even when a person says it. <laughs> Wait, we should go. I'm not here to discuss that. You can ask me privately afterwards. <laughs> who's dancing around the kala? The best, best, best friends. And who's in the circle right next to that? Like the good friends, the good friends, the good friends. Like they're there. Yeah, it's the fourth cousins. It's the, it's the. We were close in seminary, but it's been a couple of years. But I had to invite you. And if you look, if you look, I don't know what it looks like on the girl's side, but I know what it looks like on the guy's side. We call it the dead man shuffle. You know what the dead man shuffle is? It's not like a. The guys in the middle are like, Mom's going nuts, and the guys in the center. <laughs> it's not, we need better dancing moves in Judaism. <laughs> Yo, the girls tried it with like line dances and things, like, well, it doesn't look any better. You know, like, we just don't have rhythm. That's... So this article said, you know, there's people in that second, in that second circle that they're trying to break into the first circle, but the the people in the first circle are holding hands so tight that they won't let anyone else in. And isn't that what it's like a little bit? Like there's this world of the elite. It's, I went to the elite yeshiva, I went to the elite seminary. Like I'm, I'm resume building, right? It's like, I know exactly who I am and you're not one of us. Right? And we're holding hands really tight because we think we're ensuring, like, this is going to be good for Claudia. Like, if we hold hands really tight and we don't let in any anybody from the outside, like, that's the way we're going to maintain our pristine service of Hashem. Of course, how does Hashem feel about this is a very, very different story and one that we're not 
really going to talk about because that's going to make us very uncomfortable. Because while it may be true that if we keep out every kid who, let's say, has any different way, it might be true that we're going to maintain that pristine atmosphere, but at what cost? Are we really ready to amputate limbs? And one of the things, and I'll share with you from personal experience. I was in a modern Orthodox co-ed school when I was asked to leave in fifth grade. And the only other schools in the neighborhood that would take me were the yeshivish places. It was South Shore and Darche. And I chose to go to Darche because I had some friends in Darche. And I didn't really have any friends in South Shore. I knew like one or two guys. But I had friends in Darche. Now South Shore would have been more closely aligned to my family's Hashkafa at the time Darche was the most right-wing school in the five towns. So to go from my modern Orthodox co-ed school to Darche was a tremendous shift. And I wonder, I think in Darche it would still be true, but I wonder if today I would get in. Like I wonder if today if a fifth grader who gets, you know, who has behavioral issues, who's like just driving the school crazy and they say like, look, this isn't working out, right? I wonder if the yeshivish place is willing to open its doors and go, well, there's always a place for you here. And I know that there are many yeshivas like that, Baruch Hashem. But unfortunately, there are still some that aren't that way. And, and I understand where they're coming from because they're saying, look, you're going to come in with your influence and your influence is real and it's true. I definitely was doing things in the school because, not because I was a bad kid, but because of the place that I was coming from. There's no doubt that I probably introduced things to the other members of my class. Maybe stuff they didn't know before. In fact, I remember very specific conversations where I, where I was like telling guys, like, really, you don't know what that is? I'll explain to you what that is. <laughs> I remember that. And yes, I probably did have a negative impact. But I think if you weigh the impact one versus the other, I don't think I'd be here today if Darche didn't take me in. So you're right, maybe I did introduce some things to the class, and I can understand why people would be concerned about that. But at the same time, the impact on the other side was very real, because Rabbi Bender was not a person who held his arms very tight and said, we're not letting anyone else in. And isn't that an amazing gift? That's the first lesson of Chinuch. The first lesson of Chinuch is... Every kid, without exception, even those that are pushing back. The second lesson of Chinuch. The Medrash says, why did we have a need for the Torah to come to us and say, don't eat blood? Again, it's very similar to the question of why did the Torah have a need to come tell us don't eat bugs? I don't think that anybody here sees a... Like, let's say there was a girl on a tule and she trips... And she's like, bleeding. I don't think there's any girl that's sitting here going... Come here, I'll clean you up. You know, like nobody, nobody does that. That's not a normal thing. That's not a normal thing to do. So why does the Torah have a special injunction, don't eat blood? We don't have really a taiva for blood. So the Medrash says that the Mitzrim, as part of their idolatrous service used to drink blood and culturally it caught on and the Jews in Mitzrayim did it too so when the Torah came along and said don't eat blood the Torah was saying don't be culturally like the Mitzrayim this is the second lesson of Chinuch you're trying to run a home 
And the reality is that the home is a major influence, the second most major influence in a child's life. But the first is a kid's friends and the kid's community. You know what's hard? Being the child of the frumest parents in the class. That's hard. You know why? Because the parents, maybe they've got rules. Maybe when I was growing up, there was the parents that had televisions in their home. I know today it's outdated. I know today it's not, it's not about televisions anymore, it's computers. But when I was growing up, the class was divided. It's like, do you have a television in your home? Or don't you have a television in your home? And if you have a television in your home, so then you were one type of family, and if you didn't, then you were a different type of family. And it's really, really hard to be the kid of the parent who says, we don't have a television in our home, and you know we don't want you engaging with those things. And that's understandable, right? But the reality is that the kid walks into class, and what's everybody talking about? Everyone's talking about last, I know I'm dating myself because I know there's no such thing as last night's TV show anymore. It's just binging seasons at a time. I understand, right? I'll make it relevant, yeah? Let's say you're the parent who says, I'm not letting my kid have a smartphone. So as a result, your kid doesn't have access to Netflix. So they're not able to say, did you know what happened in all seven seasons of Brooklyn Nine-Nine? They're not able to come in and say, do you know, do you know how this person actually met your mother, like they don't, they, they don't know how to have a conversation about how four friends can live in an apartment across the hall from each other for all of those seasons, will they, won't they? They don't know, this person is not involved in the conversation, right? So maybe they feel left out, or vice versa. Maybe there's a kid in the class who's coming in with the corrosive influence. Or maybe you're the Rebbe who's trying to come along and say, hey, live this life of Kedusha Tahara," But you know that you're sending the kid back to a home or back to a community where these values are not kept. And I'll share with you a story. A friend of mine is a Rebbe in a uh, high school where the parents are often not observant or... How should we say this nicely? Either they're not observant, or they're like, kind of observant, you know what I mean? So the Rebbe's like, trying to give, this is what the Rebbe told me, he's like, I'm trying to give a class on Sneas, right? I'm trying to give a class on Shabbos. And this is not my example, this is what he related to me. And he said, like, of course I'm not gonna have an impact. Because the kid goes home to a place where on Shabbos morning, his mother goes out jogging, dressed not sneously, in an area and you know where there's no Eruv, you know, carrying her water bottle. So how do you want me to teach this kid? This is what he said to me. How do you want me to teach this kid about the value of Shabbos and Sneas and and and, and Halacha when the kid is just going home to that environment that's gonna undo everything that I've done? And so the second lesson of the Torah when it comes to Chinuch is, yeah, that kid too. You don't have the license to give up on that kid. You don't have the license to come to that kid and say, look, I really want to make an impact on your life, but I can't because of where you come from. Can I give you a modern day example of what this looks like? Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
I've sat in meetings before and I've listened to these quote-unquote mechanchim sit around and bash over and over again repeatedly a generation of children who they claim it is impossible to reach because of their phones. You've heard this schmooze. You know it's true. Like, I remember one, one, uh, one Pesach, I was with my brother-in-law in, a, uh, in an amusement park. To call it an amusement park is not even true. It's called Speedy Kef. It's this thing near Beitar. It's like the least amusing amusement park of all time. It's like, this thing was built in 1948 with Hakamas Hamedina. They haven't updated any of the rides since. It's just as dangerous. You know, like, it's like, but we send our children there because it's like 20 shek for a kid. No, you know exactly what I'm talking about. That thing is a death trap, right? Like, you have to see this thing. You're not, you would, if you go, you would not believe the thing that I'm telling you is called an amusement park. I'm glad I have you in the room to be able to verify like you think amusement park and you think Six Flags, what you need to be thinking is playground, not even plus. And we pay to go there anyway. So, um, like anyway, I'm not gonna get that's a whole rant by itself. It's not not an important use of our time. So there was this there was this quote unquote mechanic who was there, and sometimes this happens. Well, like I'm sitting there and like, you know, like he knows my brother-in-law, so like my brother-in-law introduces me and he says, "Oh, Mordechai Berg." You know, by the way, I like when people do that, where they don't put in the words in between the sentence. They just go, oh, Mordechai Berg, It's like they stutter their way into the next word. Like, that's not my name. I have another identity, you know? And then they do this thing where, like, you know, they try to, like, let me know that they're a mechanic too. And, like, maybe you'll give me a job, you know? And say, like, yeah, you know, like, I was, I was, like, trying to work in this yeshiva, and I was, like, teaching, but, like, today it's impossible with these kids' phones. It's like impossible. Like, how, am I supposed to, how am I supposed to grab your attention when you're sitting there the entire time and texting and, and Googling and, and you're on YouTube? And again, I'm not denying that technology is dangerous. Of course it is. There's 200 billion users of YouTube and 180 million hours a day are watched on YouTube. Of course it's a problem. Of course. And, and I'm not denying that the time that a person can spend on Instagram and on Twitter just scrolling endlessly just to see what exists. Of course, of course it's dangerous. I, I had someone over at my house for Shabbos and this person worked for Google and this person worked for Red Bull and this person worked for GameStop and they worked for ADT. This person, like literally, he worked in data analytics and psychology. His job was to grab you in and to hold you. And, and he stopped working with these companies because he had a crisis of conscience because he was like, I'm destroying people's lives. Like, it's a real thing. Five hours, he was at my house for Shabbos, and then a bunch of Mivasara guys, like six Mivasara guys came over Shabbos afternoon, and he was just like showing them like all the crazy ways in which technology is impacting their life. I'm not denying that that's true. Of course it is. Of course it's a challenge when you have to like, when I'm teaching a class and I see a girl on her phone so I have to like figure out how to make eye contact or say something in the shear that she's going to like smile and put away her phone. Of course it's a challenge. It's a wonderful challenge. But like, what are you supposed to do? So let's make these kids feel terrible about themselves. Like, let's just let them know. That's my favorite thing when you get the Yuridas Hadoros schmooze. Yeah. Like, you are the worst generation yeah. in history. Yeah. But don't feel too bad. Because the next generation will be even worse, you know? Like, well, right. No, it's like, I, I love that. I love that. I walk into a school, they're like, ooh, be careful of this 11th grade, you know, the, the time they come, ooh. And, and you hear these, and I'm not saying that they're a bam, don't have a hard job. Of course they do. Of course they do. I'm, I'm, I'm doing it also. Of course, they, of course we do. 
Because you're right, there is so much to distract you. And, and yeah, when I wanted to watch television back in the day, I had to wait week to week to see what would happen. And yes, there was no notion of binge-watching because I went to Blockbuster to rent a movie. I had to get in a car and travel. And there was a limited selection. And then you had to choose and check out and return it by a certain date. Otherwise, you would get a late fee. You understand? This is the... <laughs> This is the Flintstone generation that I lived in, right? So, so was it easier to educate? Was it easier to educate? Of course it was. But you know, it was easier to educate the generation before that because the generation before that, they only had like even less shows on television. The generation before that only had black and white on television. The generation before that didn't have television. They only had to compete with newspapers and radio. And, and yeah, we could go back and talk about, and we could spend our time talking about like, how am I supposed to teach a guy about Shmir Senayim if I know that that night he's going to go on Netflix and he's going to watch whatever he's watching? Well, I guess that kid's done, right? No. Of course not. That's why the whole schmooze is nonsense. Like, we could talk about the danger, but what we can't do as mechanchim and what we can't do as parents is just sit and ad nauseum, just sit there and, like, have this conversation over and over and over again. Because all we're doing is letting people know, like, sorry, we did our best to reach you, but you were constitutionally incapable of learning because you happen to have been born in a generation with this device. Not true. Of course it's not true, but, we, but, we've, but, we've, but we've done that. And you know that because even as I'm sitting here talking to you, so many of you are actually looking at me, which is nice. So it means I know I'm making an impact, right? But like I'm watching, like people go like, yeah, I, I did get that message. And by the way, it will get worse because the next technology will come out that will be even better. And, and that's, that's what their job is, right? Because they're trading in the currency of attention. They want to grab your attention because you're the product. They could sell you to companies. What are they doing for our kids? The same thing that we're doing for you. Instead, no, I'm being serious. Instead of instead of sitting here saying, "But it's going to get worse," right? Okay, it will. And then we're going to be innovative and creative, and it's going to be our responsibility to package the content in a way that's meaningful to that generation, so that they too can regain choice, just like we did. So it's not instead of saying like, "Oh, but it's going to be terrible. It's going to be so bad." Yeah, it'll be a challenge. But communism was a challenge too. You know, people went. No, I'm saying people went off the derech because they became communists. People went off the derech because they joined the Bund. That was like a real thing. People used to have like ideological issues. There was the Haskalah. People have always had the challenges of that generation. So this is the challenge of this generation. So instead of sitting here and saying like, you know, like what am I supposed to, like what am I, what am I going to do with these kids? What am I going to do? They're just on their phone all day long. Let's talk about it. And in fact, I'll tell you that the conversation can be the greatest point of entry if done right. And I'll give you an example. So I had this guy, Noach Levin, I had this guy at my house for five hours on Shabbos. And he's sitting with these Mevaser guys. And he gave two eitzes. Things you can do with your technology. This is what he told the guys. Things you can do with your technology to help scale it down. One of the things he said to do was what's called to grayscale your phone. There's a setting on your phone. You can look it up on Google. It's called grayscale. There's a setting on your phone where you can turn your phone to black and white. And a bunch of Mavasara guys did it this week. Why? And it's crazy. Why? One guy went on Sunday, when we had this conversation, Sunday morning, he had five hours of screen time by the time that he and I had met, which was at nine o'clock in the morning. He had five hours of screen time already. So I said, ah, like, how do you have five hours of screen time? He's like, well, I basically went to sleep at four and then I 
woke up and had an hour before I got here. I'm like, okay, like, you, you've, you've got a problem, right? And by the way, the, the, the CEO of Netflix actually said this. He said, our competition is sleep and we are winning. Oh. No, that's a terrible yeah, that's a terrifying thing to say. So I had this conversation with this guy about, about the screen usage, and, and I said, grayscale your phone for 24 hours. Let's see what happens. So the guy said, you know what? I really want to try it. And he turns his phone to black and white, and he's like, look at Like your, your phone can actually become black and white. Like there's no color. So, so he looks at it, and he goes, and you see, he's got an iPhone, and he's like, oh, this stinks. This is so uncomfortable. And I'm like, right. Like it's like, because the world is in color, right? So the phone needs to be as in color as the world to be able to hold your attention. But when it's not, it's uncomfortable. The next day, Monday morning, we met again. I said, what was your screen time after our meeting yesterday? He goes, 15 minutes. What? Yeah, because who would want to use it? Like who would want to use it? No, because like it's not geschmack to watch YouTube or Netflix in black and white. Instagram is not cool in black and white. I'm going to tell you something. This is going to be very this is going to be very hard for you to hear. You're never going to look at those pictures. You're never going to look at those pictures. You know when you're going to look at those pictures? When Google suggests, "Hey, check out what happened 5 years ago on this date." Thanks Google. I was wondering what happened. You know like and I'm not saying it's not good to take pictures, and I also take pictures of my kids, and then, you know what I really look through my pictures? When my kids get bat mitzvahed, and I have to make a video. And I'm like, then I type in their name, I look at like 100 pictures, I select like the cutest 50, and I give them to my brother, and I'm like, okay, you make a video. <laughs> like, I don't know how to do this, you know? And you don't even need to make a video today, you just put it in your computer, and like it automatically does it, and then like, and you put it up, and all the friends go, oh, you were such an ugly baby, right? Because like, we think our children are cute, but no, they're not, right? Like, Thank you. <laughs> um, so they so they grayscaled their phone, and now it's an amazing conversation. It's an amazing conversation about the use of technology. It's an amazing conversation about what does it look like when the self is actually engaged. So we can have this conversation one of two ways. We can say to you guys or girls, we can say, um, sorry. We did our best, but you were born to this generation, so kind of too bad, right? Or we can have a conversation that perhaps we never had to have before, like what does it mean to choose self-awareness? Right? Because we used to have that just because we had time without the device, and now we have no time without the device, so let's have an important conversation, right? Let's have an important conversation about the choice of what to engage in, or what we look at, what is the impact that that has on us, what we listen to. That's a valuable conversation. That's the second rule of Chinuch. Third rule of Chinuch, final rule. Keep your children's purity. The Rambam says that Tumah and Tahara are not logical. Tumah and Tahara are beyond the realm of logic. There is a movement today And there's something beautiful but also dangerous about this movement. It's the prove Judaism is true movement. This is what it looks like, if done wrong. This is what it looks like. You don't believe in God? Let me give you a list of proofs. Right? Let me give you a list of proofs. I'm going to prove it logically. 
Well, there's something really beautiful about this movement because we're trying to figure out how we could get people connected and we're trying to show them that this thing is real. But there's a problem with that. If you do it wrong, here's the problem. First of all, an infinite God cannot be measured. Right? Like, by definition, anything that measures, right, has to be bigger than the thing that it's measuring. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like, if I'm measuring this table, I have to have a measuring stick that's at least the size of this table to know exactly what it's measuring, what, what it is, right? What would be the thing that could measure the thing that created the measuring? Oh. Right? So, aside from the fact that it doesn't even make any sense. And that's why I so appreciated when Rabbi Kellerman's book called it permission to believe, right? Because he's saying, I'm not giving you proof. I'm not giving you, like, I'm not, it's not in a laboratory. We haven't put God in the lab and said, like, okay, here's, here's how we show it, X, Y, Z. No, he said, here are things in creation that we can point to, the notion of a creator. And that gives us permission to believe. But it's not the beginning of belief. The beginning of belief, and I think this is so important for our generation, the beginning of belief is, is the notion that not everything is limited by our finite intelligence, by our finite logic. That there's something that's bigger than our logic. And that we can submit to that which we don't completely understand. And as parents, that's our first responsibility. Our first responsibility is not to appeal to the lower common denominator of logic. Which is not to say that logic doesn't have a place. God gave us a brain because he intends us to use it. But not everything can be contained by logic. For example, I've said this before and I'll continue to say it again. You cannot, there is no technology of logic that could capture love. You can't explain it. And if you can, then it's not love. There is no technology of logic that can capture music. Right? Just because, like, a computer might be able to say, like, look, it has exactly this many beats per minute, per second, right? This is exactly what's happening. But everyone knows that just because you now fit it into your equation, that doesn't capture music. And if you've listened to music, and I'm, when I say listen to music, I mean actually listen to music. Not having music on in the background. I mean actually, like, thoughtfully and consciously listened to the music. That, that's an art that's, that's very lost. Right? How many, like most of us listen to music when we're exercising, right? I'm taking a walk, I'm listening to music. I'm on a bus, I'm listening to music. Right? But are you listening to the music or are you just blocking out the sounds from something else? Right? Listening to music actually means paying attention to the music that's happening. So Rabbi Avram Willig, I don't know if you've heard of him before, he's a beautiful musician. So he told me that he gives a class where he plays a song and he says, did you listen to it? And everyone's like, yeah, we listened to it. And he's like, okay, let's do it again. This time I just want you to focus on the guitar. This time, and then he does it again. This time I just want you to focus on the piano. This time I just want you to focus on the violin. And it's a completely different, completely different experience. We know that music is larger than logic. Logic can tell us something about music, but it can't grab music. And isn't it a tragedy... When we come to people and we say to them, like, could you imagine a parent coming to a child and saying, let me prove to you that I love you? Like, wouldn't that be a devastating thing? And by the way, every time a parent has those conversations with the children, what does it really sound like? It's like this defensive conversation. Like, how could you say I don't love you? Don't you know I did this and this and this for you? 
right? And what does the child inevitably say back? I didn't want any of those things. I wanted other things. So the parent goes ahead and said, I did, I did these things. Now look, don't you know that I love you? I didn't want those things. I wanted a third thing. Because if you already have to prove that, your parent loves, that you're a parent who loves your child, something is very dysfunctional in the relationship. So what we can and ought to be doing, and this is what the Kohanim are being told, your children are living in a state of tahara. They have to be pure. So teach them about that. Don't take purity and, and break it down to this logical thing that you can like talk about like in an academic way. Tahara is something that's about belonging and connection, something that's supra-logical. It's beyond the realm of logic. And we need to be raising children to, to grasp that. And I'll share with you that a, a young man came to speak to me this week. And he said to me, you know, Rebbe, I'm having Amuna issues. Because, like, you know, I believe, I do believe, but, like, at the end of the day, like, you know, like, I could touch this. I can't touch Hashem's. I could, I could touch the tree. I could, I could touch the table. So I said to him, well, who's the you that's talking to me right now? So he said, what do you mean? I'm me. I said, point to it. Point to it. You can't point to your, like, who's the me? Like, like again, let's say I was strange and pointed to my arm when I said me, right? Like, like, are you your arm? No. Well, clearly not, because what happens if you lose it? Still right? Would you say to somebody who, let's say, was born without arms that they're less of a person? Of course not. So, so who are you? What do you mean? I'm my brain. Really? So what if you, if you were less intelligent? Or if you were in a coma, you'd be less you? We would have the right just to kill you? No, of course not. The you of you is not limited to your physical body. So actually what's happening today, and this was the conversation that we ended up having, is what's happening today is relationships are, are, relationships are falling apart because we're training people to deal only in the realm of the tangible and the logical and, and that which I can concretely point to. But that's not where we should be beginning our education with our children. The beginning of our education for our children is the intangible relationship that exists. Knowing that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is beyond the realm of logic. That's a beautiful thing to teach your children. So like when kids like say like, Hashem is in Shamayim, right? They're like Hashem is here, Hashem is there. You know what they're really trying to do? I don't, like, I'm not talking about like the Uncle Moishi, you know, like Hashem is here. I'm talking about like, they're trying to say like, like my, my son, like when he was trying to explain to me how big something is, he goes, it's, it's even bigger than Hashem. You know, like when little kids, like he has a friend Yehuda Leib, and he says, so like sometimes he needs to let me know that Yehuda Leib's Abba is bigger than me. <laughs> he says, Yehuda Leib's Abba is bigger than you. So sometimes I say to him, just because, you know, I'm trying to engage with him, so I go, nah. He goes, yeah. Goes, I'm much bigger than Yehuda Leib's Abba. I'm all the way up to here. So he goes, oh yeah? Yehuda Leib's Abba? He's all the way to Shemaya. <laughs> so I say, yeah? Well, I'm also all the way up to Shemaya. And he goes, Yudalev Zaba is even bigger than Hashem. Uh-oh. And then I go, What do you say to that? Well, you won, you know? <laughs> like, yeah, I you know? And then he learned, I don't know where he learned this from, but he goes, I, I, like sometimes they're like, I love you 10. Now he goes, I love you a Google. He's like, somebody taught him that a Google means a lot. I love you, Google M1. <laughs> like he gets like, nah, there's no Google M1. Like he's four years old. He knows like the Google is the biggest thing. You know? But what is what is a little child's desire to do that? What is a little child's desire to go like, like Hashem is big? Why do we need to do that? It's because a little child has this thing like, 
I need to be able to hold this in this thing that I can understand because if I can't hold it, so like, what is it? But we're trying to teach our kids exactly the opposite. Know that there's something that's bigger than you. That's humble. That's a wonderful way to teach your children. So this whole, this whole movement of like, we're going to prove Judaism to the kids. No. If you're already there, something has fallen apart. And it's not that these kids shouldn't learn it. Of course they should, but that's not the beginning. The beginning is the kids going like, yeah, of course there's something intangible in the world. My life is not limited to the tangible. I don't know if you'll remember this in 15 years from now or whenever it is you know, that you're dealing with your teens. But I really want to encourage you, even now as you're thinking about it, in these formative years, to spend time to say to yourself, okay, number one, I'm all in on every kid, even the tough ones, even the ones that are oppositional simply for the sake of being oppositional. Number two, it doesn't matter. I know that no matter what, my kids, I'm going to do my best. Of course, I'm going to limit but I know that I'm not going to be able to control every aspect of my kids' encounter with culture. We're going to do our best. doesn't mean that we shouldn't put up important walls. doesn't mean that we shouldn't have filters on things. But also I know that just because they're out in the world doesn't mean that I get to throw up my hands and go, well, that's it. It's too bad. It's every kid. And finally, it's that foundation of faith that's above logic, before logic. It's the faith that logic exists within. That's the gift we want to give to our children.